Chapter Eight of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eight: A Steed That Knows His Rider. Daphne turned and saw Prince Clarence almost immediately, and after making the prescribed curtsey, was about to retreat indoors when he stopped her. "I say, Lady Daphne," he remonstrated, "don't run away like that." "'Your Royal Highness will be good enough to excuse me,' she said. "'I ought to be with Princess Ruby by this time.' "'She's all right, trying to teach the pages hockey in the entrance court. "'And, look here, you needn't be so beastly formal, with me, you know.' "'I may remind your Royal Highness that you desired me to observe the strictest etiquette.' "'Did I? I only meant in public.' drop it just now anyway i've been wanting to get a talk with you you see you're the only person here i can really talk to and if you only knew how awfully hipped and depressed i'm feeling are you she said i'm sorry and there was certainly pity in the soft grey eyes which rested on him for a moment or two i give you my word he went on there are times when i almost wish myself back at the office again there were things to be done there, even if I didn't do them. Here there's nothing, except cards. It wouldn't be so bad if the chaps here only knew auction. I could hold my own at that. But you couldn't play bridge with the sort of packs they've got in this godforsaken country. So they've taught me a bally game they call Krebsgriff, and I've lost over two sacks of ducats at it already. Anyone would think after that they'd treat me as a pal, but not a bit of it. Perhaps, sir, they're afraid of being rebuked for such presumption. Perhaps, but I don't think it's that. They're polite enough and all that to my face, but they don't look up to me, you know? Why should they? Daphne thought, but all she said was, That's very sad. Isn't it? he said. They don't give me a chance to show what I can do. I could knock their silly heads off at golf, and they won't even learn. And now I can't get a game. And this afternoon, when I was feeling inclined for cards, they all go off to the forest without a word to me, hunting beastly boars and bears, and I'm left without a soul to speak to. They might have asked you to do them the honour of coming too, said Daphne. I couldn't very well have gone if they had. You see, they hunt boars, and that, on horseback here, and riding's a thing I've never gone in for. It's not too late to begin, sir. Well, to tell you the truth, I did think at one time of taking a few lessons, but I don't know. You see, it would get about, and, well, people would think it rather ridiculous. I should have thought, began Daphne, no, I mustn't say any more. Oh, go on, Lady Daphne, don't mind me. What would you have thought? "'Well,' said Daphne, boldly, "'that nothing could be so ridiculous as a crown prince who can't sit a horse. "'I dare say I could, as well as any other fellow, if I tried.' "'No doubt, sir, but if you never do try.' "'I would, if I thought you cared.' "'Of course I care, Prince Clarence,' said Daphne. "'Naturally I should like to see you doing everything that other princes do.' You really aren't, so far, you know. 
I suppose I oughtn't to have said that. I couldn't help it. That's all right, he said. There's one thing, he added, thinking aloud. If I did learn to ride decently, you and I might go out riding together, what? It's rather early to talk about that, said Daphne, when you haven't even begun to learn. I know, but I will begin, for your sake. No, Prince Clarence, for your own, she replied, though I shall be glad too. And now I mustn't stay here any longer. Why, he asked himself after she had gone, was she so keen on his cutting a figure at court? The answer was obvious. He had interested and impressed her more than he could have hoped. But that, he shrewdly perceived, only made it more necessary for him to be wary. She was certainly a most fascinating girl, but if she had any ambitious designs on him, she would find that he was quite capable of taking care of himself. Still, she was right about his riding. Every prince ought to be able to ride. It would not take him long to learn, and when he could ride, he would go out hunting. She would think a lot more of him when she saw him returning in triumph with a few boars and bears as trophies of the chase. Accordingly, he took the earliest opportunity of mentioning to his family that he intended to take lessons in horsemanship, which both the king and queen considered an admirable idea. The marshal was consulted, and, though he opposed it at first, on the ground that anything which might affect the succession to the throne was to be avoided, he gave way in the end, and undertook to act himself as Clarence's riding-master. Clarence was prudent enough to stipulate that none of his family should be present while he was undergoing instruction, and the court were not to be informed that he was having any lessons at all, until he had completed the course and become an accomplished equestrian. "'Well, my boy,' said the king, when the crown prince entered the royal parlour after his private lessons in the palace tilt-yard, "'Well, and how did you get on, eh?' "'Never got on at all,' Clarence reluctantly admitted. Not likely I should, when there wasn't a belly-gee in the stables that would let me come near him. Clarence, cried his mother, you don't mean to say you've been there all this time without riding a single horse. I'd have ridden them right enough if they'd let me get on em, but they wouldn't. And pray what was the marshal about? inquired the queen. Well, he was laughing most of the time. It's my belief he'd had em all gingered up beforehand. "'I'm quite sure, Clarence, he would be incapable of such conduct as that. Why should he?' "'I don't know,' he said. "'But I won't have him about again. I'll get someone else to teach me.' "'But, my dear boy, nobody can teach you much if you can't even manage to get on a horse's back. You'll only get hurt if you try any more, and you'll be far wiser to give it up altogether.' "'Not much, Mater,' he declared. "'I'm not so easily bested as all that.' Now I've begun, I mean to go on with it. And he went on, for, to do Clarence justice, want of pluck was not among his defects. But he was obliged to admit that the marshal was not fairly accountable for the horse's behaviour, since they were quite as unmanageable when he was no longer there. They were spirited creatures, but perfectly docile until they caught sight of Clarence, when they immediately became as vicious as the most untamable bronco. If he contrived occasionally to get hoisted into the saddle, he never remained there long enough to put the royal chief huntsman's instructions into practice, and he began at last to have serious doubts whether nature had ever intended him to shine as a horseman. He said nothing of these ignominious experiences to Daphne, partly because he never found an opportunity, 
though more from a fear of being laughed at. But he could not keep them from his family, and so Daphne came to hear of his repeated failures through Princess Ruby. She did not laugh at them, however. She was even a little touched. She thought more of him for his attempts to follow her unlucky suggestion than if he had never attempted anything at all, and fully believed that if he persevered he would conquer in the end. His royal mother was so perturbed and alarmed that at last she made a confidant of the court godmother, who was about to depart on her annual visit to the court of Claire de Lune. "'He will go on with it,' Queen Selina lamented, "'and I know he'll break his neck before long. It does seem so strange that those horrible horses should behave like this with Clarence and nobody else. When his poor dear grandfather was such a good rider, too, I can't think why they should, court godmother. Can you?' The fairy Vogelflug thought privately that the reason was not very far to see. The horses of the royal stud were, she knew, of an exceptional aristocratic breed. Now poor Clarence, though of royal blood on his mother's side, unfortunately had little of the air and appearance which these intelligent and observant animals probably connected with a true prince. It was more than likely that he had failed to recognize that he was a prince at all, and so resented being called upon to carry him. But though she could be outspoken enough on occasion, she felt that this was hardly an explanation she could give to his mother. "'Well, my dear,' she said, "'it's very trying for you, of course, but I don't know that there's anything I can do.' "'I... I thought, perhaps,' said Queen Selina, with some natural hesitation, "'that you, as a fairy, might, um, know some quite simple little spell which... "'As I've told you before,' interrupted the fairy, I make a point of using my knowledge of magic, as seldom as I can nowadays. I have my health to consider, and in any case I am acquainted with no spell for making a prince into a horseman. Princes in Märchenland, she added, rather unkindly, have never needed such aids. But, after all, she was anxious that this royal family, whom she had been largely responsible for importing, should do her as much credit as possible and so she applied herself to think of something that might be of help to the unfortunate crown prince. A means occurred to her at length, but as she was by no means sure that it would be effectual, she was careful not to commit herself. She did not even mention it till she was on the point of starting for Claire de Lune, and then, before she stepped into her dove-chariot, she suddenly said to the Queen, apropos of nothing in particular, "'By the way, my dear, that jewel you were wearing when you first came—' I haven't seen you with it for a long while. How is that? Well, you see, court godmother, my crown jewels seem to suit me so much better. Then, if you don't want that pendant yourself, you had better give it to your son. To Clarence? cried the queen. Why, what use would it be to him? It's a jewel which any prince might be proud to wear said the fairy, and I should strongly advise you to see that he wears it, not merely now and then, but constantly. It may, mind, I don't say it will, but it may bring him better luck than he has enjoyed as yet. But really, godmother, I can't quite believe that a thing— began the queen, when the fairy cut her short unceremoniously. I've no time to stay here arguing about it, she said. My doves will be catching cold if they stand about any longer. By all means, don't take my advice if you don't believe in it. 
I merely thought you might find it worth trying, but you must please yourself. And now, with your permission, I'll take my leave of you. At a sign from her, the team of doves fluttered up in a snow-white cloud and winged their flight to the neighbouring kingdom of Claire de Lune, where she had another royal godson, Prince Merleflor, in whose affairs she took a keener interest than she could in Clarence's. "'Old people have such queer ideas,' thought Queen Selina, as the chariot rapidly receded from sight. "'As if that tuppenny-halfpenny pendant of Miss Heritage could—but the court godmother will be annoyed if I don't follow her advice. It's best not to offend the old creature. I'll go up and see if it's still in my jewel-case.' It was, and she brought it down in time to intercept Clarence, as he was starting in rather low spirits for another crowded hour of anything but glorious life in the riding-court. "'Clarence, my boy,' she said, "'I want you to oblige me by wearing this in future.' "'What, that thing you bought before we came away?' he replied. "'I say, Mater, you don't expect me to go about with a woman's pendant on my manly bosom.' "'Your godmother Vogelflug thinks it is quite a fit ornament for a prince,' urged his mother, "'and—and she as much as said that it would bring you good luck.' "'Did she, though?' "'Well, I could do with a bit of that for a change.' And he allowed her to fasten the chain round his neck. "'By gad, makes me feel like a good forester, or a member of the ancient order of buffaloes or something,' he remarked. "'Never mind,' she said, "'and it really doesn't look so very out of place. But remember, Clarence, if it's to do any good, you must wear it always.' "'Right-o,' he said, "'and I'll go and take my usual morning toss, what?' Half an hour later, he came into the royal parlour, where his family were assembled, Daphne being with them. He looked round the circle with a satisfied air, and then said, in a tone of studied carelessness, "'If you have nothing better to do just now, all of you, you may as well look in at the riding court in a few minutes, and see how I am getting on. I um, should like Lady Daphne to come too, and the whole court. Tell him to hurry up. You'll find me down there ready for you.' He was gone before they had recovered from their surprise. "'Dear me,' said the king, "'I'm not quite sure that it would be wise to have the court looking on just yet, eh, my dear?' "'I have every confidence in Clarence,' said the queen. "'He would not have suggested that they should attend, unless—but perhaps a smaller audience of just ourselves might be less trying for him.' So it was only the royal family and Daphne that went down to the riding-court, where, to Queen Selina's alarm, some very formidable-looking jumps had been put up. "'He's never going to be rash enough to try to get over those,' she said. "'Tell him he's not to run such risks. I can't allow him to.' Just then Clarence cantered in on a high-spirited mare, over which he seemed to have complete control. He put her at obstacle after obstacle, and surmounted all of them with the greatest ease. To prove that he was equally at home on any mount, he had several other horses brought in, and over each he showed the same mastery, and a seat with which Daphne, who was critical in such matters, could find no fault. "'You young dog!' said his father, when the exhibition was over and Clarence had dismounted. "'So you've been taking us in all this time, pretending you couldn't stick on a horse for more than a few seconds, eh?' "'Oh, well,' he said modestly, "'I didn't like to say too much. The fact is—' It's only quite lately that I have felt what you might call at home on a G. The stud grooms could have testified how very lately this was if they had thought proper to do so, which, of course, they did not. It only shows what can be done with a little perseverance, 
said Queen Selina. "'Clarence, you'll be able to ride through the city now.' He managed to get Daphne to himself for a few minutes on the way back to the palace. "'Well, Lady Daphne,' he began, "'I've done what I could to please you, and I hope you are satisfied, what?' "'Indeed I am, Prince Clarence,' she said warmly, for he had risen several places in her esteem during the past hour. "'And I congratulate you most heartily. And now things will be ever so much pleasanter for you, won't they?' As she spoke, she noticed the pendant, which, of course, she recognized immediately. "'Ah, you're looking at this,' he said. "'Dare say it strikes you as funny, my wearing it.' "'Not at all, sir,' she replied. "'It isn't really a woman's ornament.' She did not tell him how she knew it was not, for she had not forgotten her undertaking to say nothing about it. "'Well, it was the mater's,' he said. "'She's made me promise to wear it always. Thinks it may bring me luck.' "'I hope it will, Prince Clarence,' she said, quite sincerely, and, as the Queen happened to look back just then and summon her sharply to her side, that was all that passed between him and Daphne on that occasion. She was rather pleased than otherwise that he should be the possessor of the pendant. As has been said, she had never known her father, so there were no tender associations attaching to it, and she had been a little afraid that Mrs. Wibberley Stimson had only bought it out of consideration for her.' It was some relief that she had found a use for it. Daphne was, of course, quite unaware who her unknown father had been, or that the pendant was a badge of his princely rank, and both the Queen and her son had no suspicion of the truth. Nor did either of them, connected with his suddenly acquired mastery of the whole art of horsemanship, Queen Selina believing that his reports of previous unsuccess had been intended to increase the surprise of his triumph, while Clarence naturally found it easy to persuade himself that he had been learning more from his disheartening failures than he had been conscious of at the time. He certainly did not hide his new talent in a napkin, but organized riding excursions of the lords and ladies of the royal household, at the head of which he made a very gay and gallant appearance on a prancing bay palfrey. Only there was one thorn in his luxuriously padded saddle. He had hoped that he might have the pleasure of commanding Daphne to ride by his side on these excursions, but, though she accompanied him, it was never on horseback. Queen Selina, it seemed, had developed such a preference for her first lady-in-waiting society that she was always required to accompany her in the royal coach. Daphne would willingly have dispensed with this and other signs of the marked favour with which her sovereign was overwhelming her just then. She had no illusions as to the motives. The Queen thought, most mistakenly as it happened, that making a favourite of Daphne was the surest method of snubbing and annoying her other ladies-in-waiting, for whom she had begun to conceive a hearty dislike. The dislike was suddenly reciprocated. They resented their royal mistress's insolence as much as they despised her previous obsequiousness. They accepted the fact that she was their Queen, but, among themselves, they did not pretend any respect for her as was manifest from their habit of referring to her in private as Mother Schwellenposch. Edna, who was scarcely more beloved, was known as Princess Four Eyes, in allusion to her pince-nez. Daphne found it hard at times to refrain from joining them in this irreverence, but, while she saw the Queen's and Edna's weak points as clearly as her companions, and indeed more clearly than any of them, her sense of loyalty kept her silent. She might laugh when she was alone, and frequently did, but that was a relief to her feelings for which she felt she need not reproach herself very severely. 
Another reason for Queen Selina's insistence on Daphne's company in the coach was, as she was fully aware, the desire to keep her at a safe distance from the crown prince, a needless precaution which had its amusing side for her. Still, she often longed to be on a horse instead of being shut up in a great lumbering vehicle with the Queen and the Princess Royal, even if Princess Ruby's presence did something to make things less dull. On one of these expeditions, Queen Selina had once more provided herself with a sack of gold from which she and the princesses scattered largesse. "'You may throw a little if you like, Miss Heritage,' said the Queen graciously. She reserved the title Lady Daphne for occasions when the court was present. "'I'd rather not, Your Majesty,' she replied. "'I mean,' she explained, "'it's not as if it was my money.' "'I should have thought,' said Daphne, that that was all the more reason for throwing it away. And as she spoke, she flung a handful to a stout old citizen, who glared with indignation, not at her, however, but at the nimbler and needier persons who had grabbed most of the coins before he could stoop to pick them up. Daphne felt rather ashamed of these proceedings, which seemed to her not merely undignified, but likely to demoralize the public. But she said nothing. "'We're not doing this out of ostentation, Miss Heritage.' explained the queen who seemed to have divined something of her sentiments it's policy you may have noticed that we've not been nearly so well received lately why i don't know unless there's any ill feeling about those detestable little gnomes there was a good deal the gnomes having no employment on the golf links had recently broken out of their compound and found their way into esvaramal where they made themselves very much at home they quartered themselves on several of the householders, and having discovered that cooked food was more palatable than earth, they had no diffidence in helping themselves. In other respects they were inoffensive and inclined to be sociable, but, even in Märchenland, the most harmless and playful yellow gnome is not considered a desirable addition to any respectable family. The citizens, one and all, regarded their visitors as intolerable nuisances, for which they had to thank their sovereigns. It was his majesty's idea to free them, the queen went on. I was always in favour of keeping them in the mine, where they were out of mischief. And they certainly mustn't be allowed to run about loose any longer. They ought to learn some sort of discipline. Perhaps the best thing would be to train them as boy scouts. Have you caught cold, Miss Heritage? You seem troubled by a most distressing cough. King Sidney himself had begun to doubt whether the enfranchisement of the yellow gnomes was quite one of his happiest inspirations. Such Märchenlanders as had been induced to enter the mine were demanding wages which left but a small margin for profit, especially when it was considered that, if their methods of working were more systematic than their predecessors, they somehow got very much less gold. No sex at all had been delivered of late, and the shelves of the royal counting-house were beginning to look ominously bare. He forced himself to mention this to the Queen after the drive that afternoon, and point out the necessity for being rather more economical than they had been hitherto. "'I'm sure, Sidney,' she protested, "'no one can say I am extravagant. It was absolutely necessary to have the whole palace done up. I had to order some new dresses, as I couldn't be expected to wear ready-made robes in my position, and one or two tiaras and things from the court goldsmith, whose charges certainly were disgracefully high.' Then the household expenses come to several sacks a week, try as I may to keep them down. I dare say, my love, I dare say, but I hear there was another sack emptied only this afternoon. 
and we really can't go on like this. Then I shall have to give up driving out altogether, Sidney. You've no idea how unpopular you've made us all by releasing those wretched little gnomes. The people object to having to associate with them, and I'm sure I don't wonder. You simply must find some way of getting rid of them. The court chamberlain tells me a certain number could be taken on the palace kitchens as extra scullions. And we shall have them getting upstairs and running about all over the palace. Oh, no, my dear, there will be strict orders against that. But to return to our expenses, I'm afraid Clarence hasn't been as careful as he might have been, and I shall have to speak to him very— No, you will not, Sidney. I won't have you scolding Clarence just when he's doing so well. Riding and going out hunting, and making himself a social leader? You can give him a hint to be less extravagant, if you like, but no more. But the first thing you have to do is to settle the trouble about those gnomes. You'd better ask the marshal if he can suggest anything. The marshal's solution was simple but practical. There was, it seemed, a marshy tract at a considerable distance from the capital, which needed draining and reclaiming, a work which the more able-bodied of the gnomes could carry out under strict control. So the majority were deported to the Märchenlands, the remainder being employed in the royal kitchens as supernumerary and highly incompetent scullions. Whether a damp climate would suit the gnomes' constitutions was not a matter of general concern. Most of them had been supplied with jerseys, which, if they made them look more hideous little objects than ever, had been knitted expressly for them by the Queen and her ladies-in-waiting. And what more could they possibly want? The citizens of Eswarenmal witnessed the exodus of their gnomes with profound relief, but without any outburst of gratitude to their sovereign. It had somehow been allowed to transpire that they owed their deliverance entirely to the statesmanship of the ex-regent. End of chapter 8